Good afternoon and welcome to you all. My name is Heidi Scott and I teach in the History Department at UMass Amherst. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that UMass Amherst stands on Nonotuk land. Many, if not most of us, wherever we are in the world, inhabit land wrongfully taken from Indigenous people. The responsibility to address historic and ongoing crimes against Indigenous nations is inseparable from the struggle against the climate and environmental emergency. It is also necessary to acknowledge the role of UMass and other institutions in contributing to ecological destruction and to call for these institutions to reduce their ecological footprints and do more to embrace diverse forms of ameliorative action, including a commitment to environmental teaching and education. It is my great pleasure to introduce the panel, History from Below, Extractivism, Geology and Power. This event is part of the Department of History's biennial Feinberg Family Distinguished Lecture Series, made possible through the generosity of Kenneth R. Feinberg, a 1967 Department alumnus. Each iteration of this series focuses on a topic of clear and compelling concern to society and invites audiences to consider historical context, analysis and experience to better understand the topic at hand. This year's series is entitled Planet on a Precipice, Histories and Futures of the Environmental Emergency. It seeks to deepen our understanding of the environmental emergency through historical analysis and in so doing, help us to envision constructive paths forward. For more information about the series, to register for future events, and for the list of our many community and university co-sponsors, please see the series website. The next event, Young People Fighting for Climate Justice, takes place in February. This panel discussion will be co-hosted by the Department of Afro-American Studies and is also the 2021 James Baldwin Lecture. If you're watching on Zoom, you can look in the chat box for information about how to turn on live closed captioning or to listen to the event in Spanish. Following the event, I'd like to invite, I'd like to invite you to join us for a 25 minute discussion group hosted by Alison Russell, a history PhD student at UMass. We'd also like to remind you of our latest project, Dreaming the Future, a zine on our relationships with the earth and imagining possible climate futures created by and for young people and organized with local libraries. If you're 18 or younger or know someone who is, please take a look at the chat. It's now my honor to introduce our moderator for the panel, Kieran Asher. Dr. Asher is a social scientist with a background in biology and she teaches in the Department of Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies at UMass Amherst. Her research focuses on biodiversity conservation, international development, and struggles for social change in Latin America and South Asia. Alongside her many articles, Dr. Asher has published a book entitled Black and Green, Afro-Colombians Development and Nature in the Pacific Lowlands. Currently, she's working on a second book entitled Fieldwork, Nature, Culture, and Gender, in the age of climate change. Dr. Asher. 
Thank you so much, Heidi. Um, and thank you, uh, panelists, uh, audience. I'm so honored to be moderating this panel. Um, I want to spend the maximum amount of time with the panelists and give you all time to ask you uh, for a Q&A. So I'm not going to take long in introducing our speakers. Um, but I am going to introduce each speaker before they before their remarks. Uh, and I want to remind you, as uh, as Heidi has already said, that there's going to be first in Q&A with the panelists at the end of their remarks. And then after the event ends, there's going to be a separate 25 minute uh, session. So uh, I'm not going to spend too long on the long bios of our wonderful speakers today. And as I was preparing to introduce our speakers, I realized that the reason where we talk about people's work is not just because we want to give you a long list of credentials, but having taught the semester and reflecting on the issues that are going on, it was really important for me to, to recognize the work that's been done and to recognize that we all work in community with each other to bring about or to try to bring about the major, to understand and to bring about the major changes that need to happen. Um, and so I'm so, so delighted at, uh, to be introducing our four speakers, starting with Nigel Clark who's joining us from Lancaster, UK. Um, he's published widely on the issues that he's gonna talk about today, but I want to highlight two particular uh, publications. One is um, the book, he's the author of the book, Inhuman Nature, uh, Sociable Life on a Dynamic Planet that came out in 2011. And then hot off the press just uh, a couple of weeks ago, his co-authored book with uh, Branislav Szerzynski, uh, The Anthropocene Challenge to the Social Sciences just came out. Uh, he's interested in what it means for social scientists and humanities scholars to think through earth processes, a subject that's very, very close to my heart. So without further ado, thank you so much, uh, Nigel, all, all yours. Katangi te titi, katangi te kaka, katangi hoki aho. That's uh, greetings from the shear water, greetings from a big fat green parrot, and greetings also from, from myself. That's our Maori greeting from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, thank you, Kieran, for that, for that introduction. It's wonderful to be here. Um, it's wonderful to be with you all at the precipice of this wonderful series of talks. And it's great to be talking about history from below. And that is something that, that really interests me, both that dual sense of histories that are made by, by ordinary people, histories that are made by people who are situated, but also that deeper below, which is the, the history, the force, the power, the provocations of the earth itself. I'm going to be talking about explosions, not because I'm really interested in, in military history or really interested in munitions, um, but because I'm really interested in fire and the explosion is a particular kind of fire. And one of the reasons I'm interested in it is because I think for me, it links together the power over people, but also the power over the earth and particularly a destructive, violent power. So it's part of the question of, how on earth did Europeans come to be so violent and so destructive? I'm gonna try and cover a thousand years of explosions. I'm gonna contextualize that in a million years, which is probably a wee bit too much for 12 minutes, but we'll, we'll see how we go. 
I'm going to start with the Anthropocene, the idea that humans, some humans, are impacting on the way the Earth operates. And you may know that the, the Anthropocene hypothesis tends to get a little bit criticized by social scientists precisely because it doesn't always tell its story from below, from the experiences of, of ordinary people who are situated, who are in place. I think that's a, a fair enough criticism, but I think it also has some real force and some real use to, to those of us who are social thinkers. And what I really take from the Anthropocene is the idea of really there's two different kinds of scientists who've been coming together. You know, the earth system scientists who are mostly concerned about the flowing parts of the earth, the air, the water, life, those things that are mobile. The more old school geologists who are more concerned with the rocky strata of the earth. The Anthropocene question has brought these two sets of scientists together. And with that, I think they've given us a new way of really thinking how the strata of the earth, the rocky bits, the slower moving bits, and the flowing circulating parts of, of the envelope around the earth, the earth system, how they really kind of work together, um, how they, they, they play off each other, how they are in constant exchange. And of course, one of the things that's part of this exchange, this hinge between the strata and the earth system is life itself. So one of the things that life does is it hinges, it moves between the, the earth system and the strata. Uh, where there is life, there is also fire over the last 400 million years since life photosynthesizing plants took over the land masses of the earth, there has always been fire. Fire in a sense dissembles what plant life assembles or brings together. So fire in a sense is also a kind of a hinge between the earth system and the strata. So sometimes fire releases carbon back into the atmosphere, back so it circulates, but sometimes under certain circumstances, it also sequesters it. And that brings us on to another kind of hinge between the strata and the earth system. And that is us humans or the bigger human family of Hominin. So the environmental historian, Stephen Pine, who is my favorite fire theorist, he talks about humans being uniquely fire creatures on a uniquely fire planet. This is the only planet in the solar system with fire. And we are the only creatures that routinely handle work with fire. And I think that that makes us a special kind of hinge between the Earth's surface and the subsurface, between the strata and the Earth system. And there's some questions about when we first, we, our distant hominin ancestors, when we first learned to or started to, to work with, to handle fire. There's also questions about where we started to do that. The when question is very, very hard to answer. So is the where question, but there's a reasonable kind of understanding now that hominins emerged in the Great Rift Valley in East Africa. And that for me is kind of interesting when we're thinking the subsurface because the Great Rift Valley is the biggest, longest lasting fault line fracture on the Earth's surface. So where magma is kind of pulsing upwards, splitting the Earth. So as a species, as a family, uh, 
humans, hominids, emerged in this, this zone, in this fault line, in this crack, a place where the subsurface of the Earth, the inner Earth, is rising up to meet the surface. So we might think about the Earth's surface and the subsurface being in, in a work in progress, constantly in motion. And that's really where, where humans emerge. There's a very old theory that suggests that maybe we learned to use fire, not from capturing fire from the faster moving kind of whoosh of wildfire, but perhaps from the slower moving uh, lava coming from volcanoes, setting um, plant life alight. So for me, there's a, a really interesting set of things coming together. Not only are we the only fire handling creature, but we emerged in this fault line. Uh, so right from the beginning, we've been negotiating this landscape. We've been negotiating strata, negotiating this landscape where things split apart. Um, it's also interesting to, to think that without fire, we never really would have ventured underground. It's fire for a diurnal, daylight-loving creature like ourselves. It's fire that enables us to go beneath the surface of the earth, to live in caves and eventually to, to dig deeper and deeper into the, into the subsurface of the earth. So moving forward a few hundred thousand years, one of the things that, that humans have done with fire is to intensify it in furnaces and kilns and gain greater control over it. In the furnace, in the kiln, right back in the ancient world, thousands of years ago, we learned to crank temperatures up to 12 or 1300 degrees Celsius. I think that's about 2000 degrees Fahrenheit, um, as, as you might think of it. That's interesting because that is also the, the maximum temperature of lava or magma in a volcano. So in a sense, we learned to enfold the force, the power, of volcanism, volcanicity, into, into our everyday spaces, into our villages, into our towns, to work and function as if we had the power of volcanoes. And this, of course, is also tied with digging deeper beneath the earth, digging deeper for ores, bringing out those ores, smelting them, um, but also making, creating metal things that allowed us to dig still deeper beneath the Earth's surface. So that for me is just part of the long history of using fire to negotiate, again, between the Earth system and between the, the strata, how humans became this kind of intensified hinge between the Earth system and the strata. Time now to get on to the explosion, uh, a special sort of fire. It took a lot of building out a lot of working up to get to another kind of fire. Um, what the Chinese called Hua, Hua Yo, fire drug, uh, Tang Dynasty um, alchemists, were searching for an elixir of, of eternal life. But let's call them scientists. They were experimenting with all kinds of combinations of materials. What they came up with was a combination of sulfur, charcoal, and nitrates that burnt almost instantaneously. So think of fire and exothermic reaction. Fire creates, generates more fire in a kind of positive feedback cycle. Uh, 
in the case of gunpowder, it goes off in a rush almost instantaneously. And I think that that is, is really important. So really we're talking about a new kind of fire. Uh, the first time perhaps in 400 million years that a new kind of fire comes to the earth. So there's an old story that the Chinese kind of squandered this invention uh, on fireworks, but actually that really wasn't the case. Uh, for a couple of hundred years after the invention of the discovery of gunpowder, it was really put to work in all kinds of military experiments. And after a couple of hundred years, eventually came the bomb and the gun. And I think what, what I'm really interested in is how that then moved to Europe. Um, really quite suddenly, uh, gunpowder, the explosion arrives in Europe, and Europe was much less prepared for the explosion than China, which had had, in, in a sense, hundreds of years to get used to it. So one of the things I'm really interested in is how Europeans came to learn to function, learn to operate, learn to work, learn to fight in proximity to this force of the explosion, the force of, of gunpowder. So not simply a new technology, but a new kind of fire. This has been talked about the next 500 years, it's been talked about as the European warring states period. 500 years of Europeans trying to come to terms with, trying to work with this new force. I think there's something about, this says about the European subject, the European identity, coming to terms with the force of fire the force of gunpowder. By 1945, you get the ability to literally light up the entire, the entire environment, to, to create an entire explosive, fiery environment, which drives people further and further underground in order to escape this force, this destructive force. There's another side to this, which is that over time, as this buildup of firepower takes place, there is also a move towards commercial use. We might think of peaceful use of gunpowder. By the mid 19th century, more gunpowder is being used for quarrying, for mining than is being used on the battlefield. What this literally enables us to do is to turn the earth inside out, this massive increase in the power to really destructure the very fabric of the earth. And I'm interested in the fact that some of the the same ways that we cope with this as subjects, this kind of shell that Europeans put around themselves to live, to operate with gunpowder is also taken into our operations, our engagement with the crust of the earth. Another side to this is we could think of the internal combustion engine really being a, a row of cannons. And if we track back to the invention of the boiler, um, the steam engine, originally this started out as a use to try and find a use, a purpose for gunpowder that was more peaceful, less destructive than the use on the battlefield. It wasn't a couple of hundred years later that there was a move away from external combustion to internal combustion, which is also based around the explosion. So in a sense, the explosion, the force of the explosion was brought into, internalized into the internal combustion engine and the automobile that so many of us rely upon. Where do we end up? 
we end up with 1.2 billion internal combustion powered vehicles currently in the world and 1 billion firearms. Okay, just to wind up, uh, next slide, which is more or less my, my final slide. It's difficult for me to find a way to bring all this together and to wind it all up because I'm fascinated by fire. I'm fascinated by the uses that ordinary people make of fire. I'm fascinated by the different ways that we engage with the strata of the earth, the different ways we hinge together the strata and the earth system. I'm always looking for ways we can do this differently, do this otherwise, take these abilities from below, turn them into something else, more generous, more generative. But I struggle with gunpowder. I struggle with the explosion. I struggle finding a way to redeem it and turn it into something positive and generous and generative. Perhaps the only thing, and again, I'm, I'm struggling here, perhaps the only way I can think of this is to think about what might it have been if we'd gone straight from fireworks to moving beyond the earth in, in spacecraft without going through a thousand years of killing at a distance, without going through several centuries of turning the earth inside out. But I'm kind of struggling there and I, I would kind of invite anyone who's interested, help me. What, what do we do with gunpowder? What do we do with the explosion? Do we just abandon this kind of fire? Is it really too much for the earth to handle? Or is there something better, something other we can do with it? Thank you. Thank you so much, Nigel. Um, I can't help but pun and say thank you for that rapid fire walk through such a long uh, trajectory of history. Um, it is now my great pleasure to introduce Gregory Cushman. Uh, Gregory is an environmental historian at the University of Kansas. And one of the many wonderful things that the Feinberg Lecture Series organizers have done is give us access to people's publications, not just list them, but access to several publications. I'm not going to list all of Greg's publications that I think we should all check out because they are so useful to think through these issues, as I said earlier. But again, I want to flag a few books. Uh, one is his first book, Guano and the Opening of the Pacific World, a global ecological history that has won many awards. Um, and I also want to flag a recent uh, event for Gregory. It's a grant that he and his colleagues just received from, um, from Australia, from uh, the, uh, oh, I also wanted to mention because I want to say this and I think it's amazing that his book was translated into Spanish. The first book that I just mentioned uh, was translated into Spanish and published by the Institutos de Estudios Peruanos. Um, and the grant that I was talking about that was received by his colleagues from the Australian Research Council um, enables them to do an Antipodian geology, a modern history of Southern Hemispheric Earth, a project that focuses on the ancient mega continent of uh, Gondwana land. Um, and I will now pass it on to Greg. Thank you so much, Gregory. Hello, everyone. Uh, greetings from a sunny, warm, and COVID-infested COVID state of Kansas. What historical images and places come to mind when I say the words gold rush? Are any of those places pictured here? For me, the historical character Al Swearingen, played by Ian McShane in the HBO series and film Deadwood, come immediately to mind. 
cursing up a hurricane while trying to direct yet another murdered corpse to Mr. Wu's pigsty. That series was set in the, uh, during the Black Hills Gold Rush of 1874 to 78, when white, black, and Chinese settler colonists illegally and violently occupied the Great Sioux Reservation in what's now South Dakota to mine gold. Gunslingers, I have to make a reference to Nigel's talk, playing a central role and all that. The Homestake Mine in nearby Lead, South Dakota, turned out to be the second largest single gold strike in US history. It is worth highlighting the images of ethnic and industrial progress that were featured on every share of the Homestake Mining Company circa 1906. Interestingly, Lakota Sioux warriors are the focus of this image, kneeling on top of the granitic, the granitic crest of the Black Hills, gazing in awe at the settler empire that has flooded their domain. By the time it closed in 2002, the Homestake Mine had produced a whopping 1,240 metric tons of gold worth a grand total of US $76 billion, according to yesterday's spot price. This involved the systematic removal of massive quantities of 2 billion year old metamorphic rock, leaving behind an enormous pit that is most impressive, that is the most impressive human created geological formation in its own right. Not content to limit itself to precious metals, after World War II, the Homestake Mining Company also developed uranium mines in the Western US, lead and zinc mines in Southeast Missouri, potassium mines in Saskatchewan, an undersea sulfur and gas mine in the Gulf of Mexico, and a copper, lead, and zinc mine in Peru. This is typical of the globalization of major mining companies during recent decades. HBO's portrayal of Deadwood like the best historical fiction authentically represents a number of historical trends associated with modern gold rushes. In the beginning, a filthy host of placer miners and assorted fortune seekers, often migrating in from great distances, used rudimentary equipment and techniques to separate grains of gold from alluvium. In this way, they took active advantage of millennia of natural erosion that had already released these grains of gold from their original substrate. As the most accessible plaster deposits were worked out, a new wave of investors organized work crews who built elaborate waterworks to expose new gold-bearing alluvium, causing massive erosion and siltation in the process. If they were lucky, mine claimants also located hard rock deposits, which required entirely different techniques and investments to exploit. Uh, most importantly among them, uh, an ample supply of explosives. Meanwhile, the economics of everyday life became distorted. Everything became commodified and overpriced. Everything that is, except life itself, which seemingly became cheaper than ever. Only a handful got rich and powerful off these discoveries. Most ended up nearly as poor and even more abused than when they arrived. The drama in Deadwood, the television series, is focused on the disorder, corruption, political intrigue, theft, sexual abuse, racism, drunkenness, gambling, foul language, extreme violence, and ruthless genocide that typically marked the gold rushes of modern history. The longevity of the Homestake mine was a partial, partial exception to these trends. Gold rushes almost always involve an abrupt boom-bust cycle that leaves behind in its wake denuded landscapes, sedimented sediment choked waterways and depopulated wastelands dotted with ghost towns. 
Some of these trends, including air pollution, can already be seen uh, in action in these historical photos of Deadwood Gulch and town soon after their invasion. In short, gold rushes typically leave behind both environmental and social disasters. Most of us have been taught that these trends actually represent the antithesis of civilization and modernity. Indeed, the definition of barbarism. Those are convenient and comforting lies many of us like to tell ourselves about progress. It doesn't matter if we're talking about gold or silver, iron or copper, coal or petroleum, concrete or asphalt, guano or phosphatic fertilizers, my personal favorite, lithium batteries, or the rare earths in your smartphone. Our industrial civilization as we know it, and here I'm making my central argument this talk, has been fundamentally based on extractivism throughout its existence. That is, on the exploitative consumption of resources, energy, entire landscapes, and lest we forget, people, all in order to produce the so-called raw materials of modern industrial urbanized life, leaving behind impoverished ecosystems and mountains of insidious waste behind them. I'm currently engaged in a long-term research project to trace the historical roots of modern extractivism and its planetary scale impacts. Here's what I've discovered thus far. Tracing these roots just requires, a, requires us to write histories from below. Featured, of course, in the title of this, uh, of this um, symposium that we're involved in. And I speak as histories from below in two different senses. One is it requires concerted attention to the histories of everyday people that produce these outcomes, their lives, their labor, their exploitation by others, and the resistance against it. Second, this is a bit more important. Um, um, it requires concerted attention to the histories of the earth beneath our feet, to the planetary realm that environmental scientists refer to as the lithosphere. That is to the rocky crust of the earth, its geology and geomorphology, and the minerals, materials, and infrastructures that societies have produced from it. In other words, the components of what naturalists used to call the mineral kingdom. This research has produced two major findings. The first finding is that a dramatic shift in human relationships with the lithosphere, dating from the beginning of the modern era about 500 years ago, then accelerating rapidly from the early 19th century until the 1970s, has brought about an exponential increase spanning several orders of magnitude in both the amount and intensity of societal extraction of energy, chemicals, and materials from the Earth's rocky crust. And I've thrown up this up here to try to help us imagine this kind of spectacular growth and acceleration in our minds. Picture here are some of the results of my research regarding the most important industrial metals, iron ore uh, and pig iron and black and 11 other elements from aluminum to zinc. This is a semi-log graph and you may be familiar with this type of graph more than you would like to be because they have been widely used to track the exponential growth of COVID-19 infections especially to compare different countries. This graph shows a remarkably constant exponential growth rate, year upon year, decade upon decade uh, in metals production, but it's, which is very similar to concurrent trends in world fossil fuel and fertilizer slash explosive production and consumption. I'll show a similar graph for world 
gold and silver production since 1493 shortly. The second major finding of this research is that industrial, so modern industrial civilization has and is producing a unique and ubiquitous mark on the earth. Um, in other words, this, um, these histories are below are fundamental for understanding why and how uh, planetary systems have switched into a no analog state. Um, and why um, interdisciplinary scholars have been inspired to perhaps proclaim a new epoch of geological history, the Anthropocene. I'm gonna skip over um, talking more about the Anthropocene. Nigel's done a good job of introducing um, some of this and it's in the controversy behind it. I wanna emphasize that the, as a historian, I'm interested in the deeper roots of the Anthropocene um, quite a long ways before 1950. And I'm much less interested in questions of naming and periodization. And instead, wanna focus on the historical processes and eventualities that produce this planetary turn of affairs. When and where did modern extractivist practices first become important? When and where did these practices become institutionalized in ways that fundamentally directed, redirected the course of history? And who among the human, but also other than human inhabitants of the planet were the primary beneficiaries of these transformations and who also suffered their harshest consequences? The answers to these questions can be found in histories from below. This brings me back to the history of major gold mining strikes around the world. I've highlighted here the most important gold rush events of the past millennium. You'll note that the first major gold rush of the modern era did not happen in California or in Cherokee territory in Georgia or in North Carolina, which are the ethnocentric answers Wikipedia will give you if you query the first gold rush. Intense gold rushes are going on right now in New Guinea and have left horrific marks that are clearly visible from space not to mention the mercury poisoning that is poisoning the bodies of artisanal miners and people living downstream from mines in gold rush Amazonia. It is vital also to recognize that West Africa was the main supplier of gold to the Islamic and Christian worlds during the first 500 years of this period. Circa 1324 to 25, the Muslim ruler of the Mali empire, Mansa Musa, pictured by a Catalan artist here, may have been the single richest individual the world has ever seen, even now. His family controlled the starting points of the booming Trans-Saharan gold trade. In 1482, Portuguese expeditionaries established El Mina, the first permanent European coastal trading post on the Gulf of Guinea, close to the Akan gold fields of modern Ghana, in order to bypass Islamic control of, Trans of the Trans-Saharan trade. From that date until about 1520, as much as a ton of gold each year flowed out from Africa's Gold Coast into the nascent Atlantic world economy. Meanwhile, African lords were very careful to maintain their control over gold production. And the, these two groups soon built a lucrative trade in human cargo, slaves. The prospect of finding human, vegetable, and mineral riches in the sunburnt tropics was a fundamental motivation for Columbus's famous voyage not only to the west, but also to the south of the Mediterranean world, towards the lands of the sun, where these things supposedly will be found in greatest abundance. Now we let me switch hemispheres. 
Extractivism became institutionalized and embedded as a distinctly modern practice during the first major gold rush of the modern era, which took place on the Caribbean Isles of Haiti, Borican, and Cuba, to use the names used by their indigenous inhabitants, the Taino, before they were later rechristened as the Greater Antilles. When Columbus and company landed on the northwest coast of Haiti around Christmas 1492, uh, they took part in a local winter solstice celebration. The paramount cacique of the region, Guan Kanagari, presented the company with a gold belt and a gold mask and redirected them to the interior province of Cibao, from whence the gold had supposedly originated. Here are the focus of this map. In the spring of 1493, oh, I guess I should add, considering all that followed, this has to be the worst idea ever for a Christmas gift. In the spring of 1493, this expedition brought back to Castile a whole number of items. Chiles, dye stuffs, wildlife, Amerindian crops, Taino slaves. But where the future course of modern history in our entry into the Anthropocene is concerned, the most important thing they returned with by far was these Taino gifts of gold. For a short moment in world history, lasting less than 30 years, again, this boom-bust cycle. The placer gold mines of Cibao, La Vega Real, then Puerto Rico and Cuba, all became major world centers of placer gold production, as symbolized by the rum lines in this beautiful 17th century map, suited on the gold fields in the heart of what is now the Dominican Republic. Indeed, in terms of sheer quantity, these finds were significant on a global scale best illustrated for me with another one of these complicated simulog graphs. As another aspect of this lithospheric perspective in history, I've tried to quantify world production of precious metals. And one nice thing is that people have counted this um, kind of data as carefully as anything. Uh, and we can talk um, confidently about the general amounts of stuff going back as much as 500 years. Once again, this is a semi-log projection. So it's illustrating um, exponential growth over time, particularly when the curve is headed straight up. And I wanna emphasize that I've also highlighted here, if you look at this closely, you have silver on the top, gold, an order of a magnitude below this uh, in, in yellow. And I've also divvied out colonized regions of the world where gold rushes struck then moved on, struck again, leading to these abrupt increases that you'll see at various moments along these graphs. Going back to the beginning of this series, and maybe you can see my cursor here, the very beginning from 1493 to 1520, the amount of gold officially mined by Caribbean native groups or simply stolen from them amounted to at least 25 metric tons of gold. While this may seem paltry, compared to the thousands of ton of gold, tons of gold mined in South Dakota's Black Hills or in the famous Fort Knox. This represented an almost instantaneous increase in the world gold supply by around 20% right as we passed the turn of the 16th century with the current market value of US 1.54 billion. Insert here the general vision of greed, thievery, murder, exploitation, and all-out genocide that he learned from anti-Westerns such as Deadwood. Yes, I'm arguing here. Here's the beginning of potential beginning of the genre of the Western. 
on Hispaniola in Puerto Rico and Cuba rather than in what's now the United States. For matters of time, uh, this cartoonish image of Taino placer miners uh, from a witness to these events will have to stand in for their story. Uh, read carefully, this illustration suggests the systematic erosion and vegetational destruction that this primitive industry also wrecked upon the land and these isles. And if you're looking for Christmas gifts, I might add that you can buy a plastic case to protect the minerals making up your iPhone using this very image, which is very disturbing, I might guess. Now to wrap up. From there, the modern gold rush frontier shifted to the treasures and mines of the Inca and Aztec empires. Then in the 1590s to what is now Northern Colombia, from where these graphic images drive. They show the further racialization of gold production and mining, now involving enslaved Africans as pit miners, but also native and mestizo laborers. And they also suggest the prodigious amounts of wood fuel that were engaged by gold processing factories. From there, the story of the modern gold rush is repeated almost ad nauseum in newly colonized territories scattered around the Americas and around the world. I want to end this presentation waving at one final semi-log graph, which vividly illustrates not what humans are producing from themselves, but instead the tangible environmental impacts resulting from similar extractive activities around the world over the past 600 years, if you look down at the bottom. These graphs show the concentration of lead found in ice cores excavated from ice sheets in Antarctica Greenland and from the Calcaya Peak in the Andes of Southern Peru. Lead is a naturally occurring element in airborne dust, landing on these extremely remote, and so we would think pristine ice fields. But in all three of these graphs, we can see a marked order of magnitude increase right in here. Um, in lead concentrations at the end of the 19th century, that far surpasses the previous range of natural variability. And that can be directly tied to mine smelting and other extractive activities. If you wanna press me when I think the Anthropocene began, it's right here. Not in that exact date, but in this swath of exponential growth indicated by these poisonous marks found in geological strata and others like them. But wait. It's a familiar story right there associated with industrialization. Do these marks actually start with the times, places, societies, and activities we typically associate with the Industrial Revolution? I'm very intrigued by the notable geometric increase in lead concentrations in this Peruvian ice core from the late 15th to mid 17th centuries. This is very likely evidence of lead pollution from nearby colonial silver smelting in places like Sea. But this upward trend doesn't only, isn't only there, it extends back roughly into the era of expansion of the Inca Empire that preceded it. Scientists will need to examine the exact lead isotopes involved to confirm or reject this hypothesis, but I'm fascinated by the role of both colonialism by European-derived societies as well as colonialism and empire built by indigenous groups in the Andes as contributors to this. Interestingly, and in conclusion, some of the clearest evidence of modern society's changing relationship with the lithosphere and of the global importance of histories from below actually derives from ice caps at the very top of the world 
and far from the supposed centers of action of modern world history. The fact that these particular geological deposits are now rapidly melting due to human-caused climate change and in turn are already beginning to flood our coastlines is yet another inconvenient and discomforting truth about where we are headed in the, anthrop in, in the Anthropocene. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Greg. Uh, next up is my colleague from UMass, Angelica Barnal, whose work focuses on contemporary issues of extractivism, but specifically on uh, decolonial theory, radical political change, indigenous rights, and social movements in Latin America. Um, again, uh, amongst extensive publications, I want to highlight a few. One you can find through the Feinberg uh, website and her book, Beyond Origins, Rethinking Founding in a Time of Constitutional Democracy, uh, which received the first book award, honorable mention from the Foundation of Political Theory. Um, thank you so much, Angelica. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. So over to you. Thank you, Kiran, for this introduction. And I wanna thank Heidi and the organizers of the Feinberg series for this invitation. I'd like to also begin my talk by acknowledging that we stand on Nanatak land. I'd also like to acknowledge our neighboring indigenous nations, the Nipmuc and the Wampanoag to the east, the Mohegan and the Pequot to the south, the Mohican to the west, and the Abenaki to the north. Today, I'll be talking to you about Pachamama's rights or rights of nature cases and indigenous resistance to extractivism in Ecuador. Um, and I'd like to begin by talking about one of those cases. On August 20th of 2019, hundreds of individuals gathered inside the courtroom of the Pastasha Judiciary in the town of Puyo, Ecuador, to listen to hours of arguments surrounding a planned hydroelectric plant on the Piatua River. The hearing was initiated by indigenous Quichua people from the communities of Santa Clara, who sought a protective injunction to halt the plans by the Hennefran Hydroelectric Company to build this plant. Since the company was first granted an exploratory license in 2014, indigenous groups okay. have been resisting in a range of ways, from road blockades and marches to protest on social media through their hashtag Piatua Resista campaign, and most recently, a lawsuit. In this resistance, indigenous people challenged not only the company's actions, but the state's authority as well as the legitimacy of their claims to sovereign management and the exploitation of natural resources. And they importantly have done so in novel ways. Indigenous groups argued not only against the environmental impacts of building the dam, but as you see in these images here, they argued as well on the basis of the rights of nature. Mainly indigenous groups asserted the rights of the Piatua River itself, as you see on, the, on these slides, um, to uh, the Piatua River itself as a sacred site. Now, the case of Piatua Resiste is emblematic of the topic at hand today, stories that remain untold about human entanglements with the physical earth. But let us pause for a moment. That sto some stories remain untold is we have to understand a factor of who's doing the listening and the resulting distortions, disavow, and oftentimes violence that occurs when the ears are the state. This is the story that I'll relay in the short time that I have today. This is the story of Pachamama's rights, the making of nature as an agent of rights 
in the context of intensified extractivism as it has taken place in Ecuador over the past decade. Now, let me begin where all things must begin, Pachamama. Now, the concept of Pachamama has long been present in Andean cosmologies from Colombia and Ecuador to Peru, Bolivia, and Argentina. Pachamama is often loosely translated as Mother Earth or Nature, but these are shorthand for something broader and more complex the challenges translation. In the Andean Quechua myth of creation, the universe, existence, time, and space, and all entities within it originate within Pachamama. As the Quechua intellectual Ariruma Kowi explains, Pacha represents time and universe, such that Pachamama means mother of the universe. As Kowi writes, together these reflect a vision of the world that establishes a difference with the vision of the Occidental world, because implicit within it is the idea that nature and the universe are a living being, generating with them a level of kinship. Now, in the past decade, the concept has entered into the political arena in Ecuador in powerful new ways. The first was the Constitution. In 2007 through 2008, Ecuador underwent a process of rewriting its constitution in a wave of constitution making linked to the rise of new left governments and to attempts to engage in decolonial projects to remake the state. Now, one of these attempts was the establishment of these rights of nature. In this, Ecuador became the first country in the world to make nature not only a subject, but an agent of rights. But why do this? The granting of rights to nature reflected a historic and awe-inspiring feat by Ecuador's indigenous and ecological movements and their allies to confront what now, 12 years later, in the global north, we're only beginning to tackle in fits and starts. And this is a just transition. The rights of nature was accompanied by a whole new model of development meant to transition Ecuador's political economy. Now, this model, which you see a uh, picture here, this is a slogan from the model, was called Buen Vivir, which is adapted from the indigenous Quechua concept of Suma Kausai, a concept that represents the idea of living well or an excellent or good life that is lived in harmony with humans and their other than human relations. Now, translated into political economic terms, the Buen Vivir was to be a new pact of coexistence that would create a biosocialist republic that could transition Ecuador from a new, towards a new post-development and ultimately a post-extractive era. The idea went to the heart of the matter, the capitalist model and its reliance on unfettered extraction of natural resources as its engine since European colonization first began in 1492. Now, its co-optation by the president and its translation into his vision of state building, however, meant that this idea ended up materializing very differently. Now, while it was delinked with capitalism, it was nonetheless situated very firmly within the model of an extractive economy. In discourse after discourse, Ecuador's president, Rafael Correa, rightly proposed that a critical mission of the state was going to be to alleviate poverty but he wrongly sought to do it by expanding the frontier, by establishing this good life of all on the backs of indigenous people and expanding the extractive frontier from petroleum, which had been longstanding towards mining. Now the rents derived would end up fueling social spending that had some positive results in reducing poverty. But in the end, these results were temporary and ultimately unstable and violent. 
Uh, as my colleague Greg talked about, um, we have a highly volatile commodity market marked by booms and busts. So what went up had to come down and the money that fueled social spending dried up and was replaced instead by a desert of foreign debt. Now what in instead was replaced also was that what did increase was social conflict in the confrontations between the state and various affected populations of both indigenous and non-indigenous people, as well as racism and violence. But in the midst of intense violence and precarity, something else was consolidated, and that's been the focus of my research. The rights of nature went from words on constitutional par parchment to a new discourse and politics of resistance, so more than just mere rights, an, an, an object of resistance. This is the philosophy and political praxis of anti-extractivism. This is the other story of Pachamama's rights. It's the story of the proliferation of new proposals and political strategies that together articulate the wholesale rejection of extraction because you can't extract, buy and sell, export, mortgage, speculate, or profit from land and resource within it when that land is your mother, oil is blood, and the rainforest, rainforest is a living being. Let me highlight one example, Kausak Sacha. Kalsak Sacha is a proposal introduced by the Amazonian Sarayaku people. The project challenges status conceptions of what's been called subsoil sovereignty. Put simply, that the state somehow owns unquestionably the resources that are above, but also below, and therefore can make contracts, sell, mine, export, because it's somehow part of its sovereign right. Against this very familiar and dominant vision of the state, Kalsak Sacha proposes viewing the rainforest, a still high priced commodity in global markets, as a living forest, a web of mutual coexistence, dependence, and reciprocity between humans and their other than human relations, and therefore not for sale. In this, it departs from indigenous cosmologies that bring front and center ancestral claims that link the land to indigenous people's self-determination. Kalsak Sacha also introduces, importantly, two environmental innovations. The first concerns the creation of a new international and national conservation category to declare indigenous territories a zone free from oil and mining. Second is an alternate geographic demarcation of territory called Hatun Kalsak Sisa Nyampi. Translated the life frontier or the living way of flowers, this symbolic demarcation would against the state's traditional demarcation of territorial boundaries, demarcate indigenous lands through the cultivation of a living perimeter of flowering trees in areas of deforestation. In, the mature, in their mature manifestation, these spaces would then appear as colorful blankets visible from the, from the air to demarcate the territories of the peoples in resistance and provide for spaces of environmental regeneration. Now, proposals such as Kausak Sacha are but one of the many political, juridical, and electoral strategies that have deepened and helped to consolidate anti-extractivist resistance in Ecuador and beyond. As extractive industries continue to grow and continue, continue to do so even under the context of COVID at the present, so do rights of nature cases. 
Advocacy efforts based on anti-extractive positions have also helped forge coalitions of indigenous and non-indigenous populations. In 2018, for instance, residents of the province of Azuay successfully blocked extractive activities on the Rio Blanco mine operated by the Chinese firm Equa Gold Mining. Movement leaders such as uh, Yaku Perez Wambartel featured here and others brought together arguments about the affected interests of safe, of, for a safe environment of the local populations with more biocentric arguments that interestingly combined indigenous cosmologies about wakas or sacred sites with Christian cosmologies about sightings of various saints or the Virgin Mary in sacred uh, nature riverways. So they combined those two in a creative way to forge a political coalition. By 2019, on the heels of this successful campaign, Perez Guambartel was elected the province's first indigenous governor. No small feat. Lastly, rights of nature cases and strategies have also extended beyond Ecuador to countries like Bolivia and have been part of a global movement that has staged, among things, international tribunals, hosted regional conferences, and continues in the present moment, which is very urgent under COVID, to generate monetary support and build international solidarity for indigenous populations. So in conclusion, I want to end this talk by addressing the other question posed to this panel. How can cases such as this help us to better comprehend and confront our contemporary planetary predicament? Now first, to work on a just transition, we have to unsettle ideas that have become taken for granted as rights but are the foundations of what support in extractive industries. The main one of these is the idea of subsoil sovereignty, which links the state's authority with the right, sovereign right to territory. Like ideas such as terra nullius or no man's lands, these ideas have for hundreds of years and still in the present been used to justify the unjustifiable. That is that the territory which the state claims is stolen land won through the violent dispossession of indigenous people. Second, it is that land and what is in it is not inert matter or things which human beings can do as they please from the perspective of their own needs and wants. Now our climate crisis has already made that abundantly uh, clear. Third, the challenge we face is not just a scientific one but clearly also a moral, political and ethical one on a global scale. Fires and deforestation in the Amazon, we know affect the whole world, but yet combating the activities of extractive industries is not just a problem from indigenous populations in Ecuador and Brazil alone. Now we have but a decade to act. And as we've seen, the biggest obstacles to national and global action are political ones. In the US, we're at a critical juncture and there is finally the possibility, I hope, of an opening with the new Biden administration and the ways in which the Green New Deal has taken root. Now, the Ecuador case, in my opinion, offers us a very important and timely lesson of a missed opportunity by a left in power government to finally reject the extractive model. Pachamama's rights also offers us another one, the need for political projects that reorient our understanding of our place and relationship with the physical environment and for building collective power to pressure states into action and international solidarity. Now, in the spirit of that, um, I think we've made available in the chat some links to um, websites that may be of interest, such as Amazon Frontlines, Amazon Watch, and various leaders that you can follow on Twitter to learn more and help build international solidarity. So thank you for listening.
Thank you so much, Angelica. Um, our last speaker for the evening is Andrea Marston, and Andrea also works in the Southern Cone. Her earlier research was on water politics, and her current work is on tin mining in Bolivia. Um, she's currently working on a book that draws on her ethnographic research on tin mining cooperatives in Bolivia to explore how the histories and geologies of uh, colonialism and nationalism shape the country's politics. Um, and overall, her research focus on how, uh, focuses on how research ex resource extractive policies, like the ones that uh, that our previous speakers have talked about, recreate gendered and colonial um, histories and geographies. So uh, over to you, Andrea. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you so much for that introduction. And hello to everyone. Thank you for coming out to hear us talk about histories from below in the subterranean. Um, it's an honor to be here tonight. I just wanna thank the organizers of the Feinberg series for inviting me and all the sponsors for making it possible. Um, I'm joining today from New Jersey, from Rutgers University, um, which is situated on the traditional Lenape territory. And I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen. Okay, so my talk today and it's really helpful to me that everyone has already um, done the work of giving the really broad overview of the Anthropocene and the role of extractivism in world history, because I'm really going to zoom in on something quite small. Um, my talk today is about the relationship between geological particulates and unequally distributed pulmonary vulnerability. To anyone who is familiar with coal miners' black lung disease or the rising cases of childhood asthma in major cities, the permeability of human lungs to geological particulates is nothing new. But it is a newly important topic in the context of the current pandemic and COVID-19's unique pulmonary pathology. So I'm going to argue that thinking geologically about the pandemic helps us follow its colonial pathways, where historical and contemporary forms of resource extraction have left Indigenous and Global South communities disproportionately vulnerable to the novel virus. It also reminds us that this is not the first time that geology and disease have collided. The planet has already been patterned by devastating population collapses that emerged at the intersection of subterranean resource extraction and colonial disease transmission. So with that in mind, I'll be talking about the relationship between geology and pathology across three levels. At the level of the community as an environmental justice concern, concern for miners whose lungs have already been compromised through geological exposures at the level of the body as an interaction between silica dust and viral activity inside the lungs, and at the regional level as a colonial history that is looping rather than, rather than progressing linearly. Weaving together evidence from across these three levels, I'm going to conclude by suggesting that geological matters are not only rendering some lungs more vulnerable than others, but that they are also what makes the viral progression at its current rate and scale possible in the first place. So the basic point here is that geological substances are constitutive of the pandemic as it exists today. And this argument is embedded within my larger research project in which I've been exploring the relationship between subterranean natures and social histories in Bolivia. 
I'm interested in how the Bolivian subterranean was constructed as national patrimony or essentially as a treasure chest of wealth that ought to be evenly distributed amongst all Bolivian citizens and how people who live in current mining zones negotiate this national history alongside their own indigenous and labor-based claims on the subsoil. And I just want to point out that on this mural, it says industrial and mining Bolivia to live well. And as we saw in Angelica's presentation, this is a perfect example of indigenous thoughts about the good life being manipulated for extractivist purposes. While conducting research between 2013 and 2017, I spent nine months in a town called Yayagua in a region called Norte Potosí, um, which is right about where this yellow star is on the map. Behind the map, you can see a picture of the town taken from above. Yayagua is a tin mining town that has been active since the turn of the 20th century. Although the company officially shut down in 1985, laid off miners and their families formed associations now known as mining cooperatives and continued to labor in the husk of the mountain. These are predominantly indigenous identifying miners who now manage the entire process of extracting, refining and selling low quality tin ore to smelters which in turn export the metal to Chile and on to China, where tin is used as solder in virtually every manufactured technological device. Rising demand for tin has meant that these small scale mining associations are actually growing despite the exhausted resource deposit that they operate. So methodologically, I spent a lot of my time underground with these miners crawling through passageways so narrow that it was impossible to turn one's helmeted head sideways. I accompanied miners to all the corners of the mine and learned how they labor, by which I mean both the physical process of identifying and extracting ore and the organizational process of dividing access rights and labor hierarchies. I also learned how the miners understood themselves and their occupations in relation to the historical significance of the mine and its contemporary abandonment. As you might imagine, being underground is a full body experience and I pay a lot of attention to how workers' bodies are shaped by their subterranean work. This might include their specific jobs such as drilling or washing rocks in acidic water as you can see in this picture or more general, the more general experience of being underground all day in pitch black claustrophobia inducing tunnels surrounded by clouds of dust and deafening noise. In this work, I found myself focusing on specific aspects of the body, especially hands, skin, and of course, lungs. Tin miners in Yayagua call silicosis of the lungs the inheritance of the mine. Silicosis is caused by crystalline silica, an extremely hard rock typically found in quartz. When silica dust is inhaled, these tiny grains are deposited around the alveoli of the lungs, where they are ingested by macrophages, a type of white blood cell that attacks foreign substances. This in turn initiates an inflammatory response. Silica particles are encased with collagen, causing fibrotic scarring and nodular lesions that leave the patient short of breath and vulnerable to other pulmonary diseases like tuberculosis. Indeed, miners in Yayagua speak of silicosis and tuberculosis in the same breath as if they were a hyphenated condition, silicosis tuberculosis, that cannot be easily disentangled. 
So like everyone around the world, this last spring, I began thinking a lot more about lungs, my lungs, my family members' lungs, and the millions of lungs hospitalized following the outbreak of the pandemic. Much like silica dust, this coronavirus is a pulmonary threat. After using the host body cells to reproduce its own DNA, the virus heads down into the lungs where it irritates the lung lining and can eventually infect the alveoli, which are the small sacs that fill with air and allow oxygen to pass into the bloodstream. X-rays of patients with advanced silicosis and COVID-19 look shockingly similar to the non-expert eye. When the coronavirus started spreading rapidly in Bolivia in late spring and early summer, I began reading articles such as this one, which suggested that the region of Norte Potosí, which is where Yayagua is located, um, was becoming a COVID hotspot. At the same time, I started receiving messages from my contacts in Yayagua informing me of the passing of minors who had contracted the virus. In nearly every case I heard about, the diagnosed comorbidity was that the minors already had silicosis. By this point in the pandemic, we had all read a lot about the vulnerabilities of people with asthma and COPD, whose comparatively limited lung capacity makes it harder for their immune systems to fight back. The same is also true for patients with silicosis, though this story doesn't appear as often in the Anglophone media. In the US, for example, there aren't many current or former minors living in major cities, which means that the crises are localized in rural towns. But this doesn't mean that the crises are non-existent. A quick tour of the internet will confirm that the geological viral complex has been identified in mining regions in the US as well as abroad. As you can see in this headline, the coal miners unions in the US um, are they're seeking special protections and otherwise Trump supporting mining towns have been very cautious about wearing masks and staying indoors. In Yayagua, this is an environmental justice story that was already tragic before the onset of the pandemic. Doctors in the pulmonary wing of the hospital told me that silicosis rates have been rising consistently since the state mining company shut down in 1985. Before that, silicosis rates were lower because the company used hydraulic drills, which churned up mud instead of dust. Contemporary small-scale miners cannot afford to pump water through the mines, so they use pneumatic drills instead. Billowing dust fills small enclosed spaces within a matter of seconds. The degradation of the mountain, rendered less profitable by its slow evacuation of resources, has thus resulted in the degradation of the miners' lungs, rendered more vulnerable by inefficient technology and inadequate safety gear, or in short, by post-industrial poverty. Now, instead of silicosis tuberculosis, the miners are fighting a battle against silicosis tuberculosis coronavirus. And making this even more tragic is the fact that this is far from the first time that geological particulates have made indigenous peoples in Bolivia more vulnerable to foreign pathogens. When the Spanish arrived in the Andes in the early 1500s, they brought with them all the diseases that had already been so devastating to indigenous peoples in the Caribbean and Mesoamerica, smallpox, measles, typhus, and cholera. As school children in the US are taught, indigenous people in the Americas had, quote, no immunity to these diseases. But wherever the Spanish went, they limited the possibility of indigenous people developing this immunity by forcing them to labor underground in gold and silver mines, as we heard in Gregory's talk. 
And the most famous example by far of Spanish silver exploits is also located in Bolivia in the city of Potosi, um, which is just a few hours south of Yayagua. And this is a picture of that city um, here. While Yayagua was an industrial tin mining town whose heyday was the first half of the 20th century, the silver mines of Potosi were the most prosperous in the 16th and 17th centuries. But this mountain has actually been mined for consistently for 500 years up until just recently with COVID um, when it actually had no miners for the first time in five centuries. Wow. <laughs> um, for indigenous peoples at that time, laboring inside this mountain was excruciating work. The Spanish demanded that one seventh of the male indigenous population be working underground at any given time. And these workers spent days, even weeks without seeing the sun. Historians have estimated that about 8 million indigenous people died through such services to the Spanish crown. Parsing out the causes of death, disease versus geological particulates is impossible since the two kinds of exposures exacerbated one another. The recent convergence of silicosis and coronavirus in Yayagua is a contemporary echo of these past <coughs> excuse me, colonial exposures reminding us that the past is far from past. In this case, colonial histories remain salient in global political economic structures in which some world regions are still treated as giant resource deposits and in the subsoil itself, where people are still living and working in enclosed dark spaces. Down there, all one can inhale is a cloud of dust and another person's exhalation. Social distancing is a comical concept in a tunnel through which miners must slither on their bellies behind the boots of their fellow workers. <clears throat> so as I said earlier, I want to conclude by suggesting that not only do geological particulates make some lungs more vulnerable than others to COVID, but the geological matter has also been necessary to the virus's rapid global transmission. SARS-CoV-2 would not have moved very far out of Wuhan without fossil fuel-based travel over land, sea, and air. For all that this pandemic relies on interspecies mingling and close human contact, subterranean substances are also constitutive elements of the viral spread. Engagements with the subterranean, while it might seem inert or empty, have shaped human social worlds and individual human bodies in myriad ways. These engagements have resulted in an unevenly patterned planet where environmental injustices occur along the porous seams between rock and flesh. In the case of silicosis and COVID, understanding the intertwined colonial histories of geology and pathology is crucial to developing responses sensitive to their mutual amplifications in the present. Thank you so much again. I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Andrea, for staying to time. Um, we now have about 15 minutes for questions. We're gonna go over just a little bit. Um, the questions have been coming in, thank you so much. Uh, Emily has been curating them for me. And I'm going to, I want to remind you all that there's going to be another, Q, that you can, uh, there's a virtual Q&A form. So please keep your questions coming in. And after the 15 minutes of uh, Q&A with the panelists, there's going to be a 30 minute discussion afterwards. So feel free to stay for that. 
Um, so for the moment, for the 15 minutes that are left to us, what I'd like to do is to invite all four panelists to reflect on a question that I sort of am uh, I'm curating by, by trying to bring together what I'm hearing from all of you and from what I'm hearing from, from the questions. And I'd propose to go in the reverse order with Andrea first, then Angelica, then Greg and Nigel. And the question that I'd love for each of you to address is, from what I'm hearing you say, what you're explicitly asking us to think about, um, you're making connections between, between history, geology, geography, and politics, right? The connections between the past and the present. Um, and the connections between the so-called material and non-living world and living world. The non-living is very much living. Um, and of course, you'll have all flagged the raced elements of that living and non-living connections. And Andrea, you began highlighting the gendered dimensions of it. So what I'd love for each of you to sort of uh, reflect on after having heard each other is sort of the connections, right? The connections between history and geography um, on the living and the non-living and the implications of geology and history for, for geography and politics and its gendered and racial dimensions. And I'll try to write this down. It's a mouthful, but if you want it in a short form, connections and relations. Okay, thank you. Um, that's a huge question. So I'm going to shrink it into a part that just speaks to the talk that I presented today. Um, to think about the way that the materiality of the underground or the geological substances um, create difference along race and gendered lines. And in the case of the mine that I spend a lot of time in, in Yayagua, this is really clear when you think about the kind of ores that tin comes in. Um, Cassiterite is the ore that the richest kind of tin is present in. But by the time the small scale miners that I work with took over the mountain, most of the cassiterite was already gone. Um, the other kinds of ore that you get tin out of, kinds of pyrites, involve a lot more chemicals. And generally speaking, the people who have um, the longest multi-generational access to um, the mountain, and these are the people who might identify more as mestizo and less as indigenous, are the ones who are able to work in the parts of the mine that have cassiterite. So this just means that their bodies are less exposed to chemicals, they don't have to work as long. Meanwhile, the recent more indigenous identifying migrants who come in um, are working in the parts of the mine where they do have to work with a lot more chemicals. Um, this also shows up in, in terms of a, in a gendered way um, when we think about lungs actually, um, because uh, the kind of work that women who work underground and the underground is really a heavily masculine space, but there are some women who work underground, but the work, kind of work that they do underground with the materials are kind of like the mining version of domestic labor. They spend a lot of time washing rocks underground um, to look for ore, which means that they're exposed to a lot of acidic water. But it also means that when they go to the hospital, the doctors will not check them to see if they have any kind of pulmonary problems because they just assume that women don't do any drilling, which is the most masculine activity that pulls up the most dust. Um, so in all these ways, the kind of the materiality very much defines these sort of gendered and racial lines just within the context of one mountain. Thank you, Andrea, I appreciate it. Um, Angelica, to you. Yes, 
Thanks, Kieran, for that question. Um, yeah, the materiality is, it's hard to speak of even of it as materiality because it's something more, because it is a space. It's a space of history itself, of time, of culture, of self-determination. It's become such a, you know, it's been articulated as this um, jurisprudence and political strategy of the rights of nature, but it's something bigger. And it's also not just something of the present, although it's been emerging as a political strategy in the present, but it's been longstanding, you know, even as a political strategy, we saw that anti-extractivism has been present with groups since the 1970s. What is really interesting to me in my research, and this is where I appreciate your gender focus, um, because it's something I didn't uh, talk enough, but in the chat, I made available some of the links to indigenous women leaders in Ecuador, Amazonian leaders, because this radical anti-extractive strategy, uh, strategy or front or philosophy that's emerged in the last few years has been, um, has been elaborated and um, propelled further and deepened by women activists in the Amazonian region. So the proposal at Casa Sacha comes from the Sariyaku people, but most prominently has been associated with Patricia Walinga, who's a Sariyaku leader. And she has been, you know, building on the strategy of it, the philosophy of it, in collaboration with indigenous women who are organizing increasingly. And a lot of it is very related to what Andrea also mentions because extractive, they're on the front lines of the extractive frontier because they're facing as caretakers and as those responsible with caretaking are facing um, the repercussions of companies and the pollution. And when they see livestock die off or have to deal with um, family members that are getting sick, they're burdened by it the most. And they're also as leaders facing with the most violent retaliation. So the predominance of uh, land defenders, Pachamama defenders that have been most targeted, and I included in the link one of those, um, uh, Gloria Oshiguan, um, those land defenders have been predominantly women. And it's a very sexualized uh, type of, of violence that's increasing. Um, uh, that so so the gender dimension is very strong and it's 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 and you know we've seen that also present in the long span of colonization as well. Thank you so much, Angelica. Greg, you have a few minutes. Okay, um, there's three things I'd uh, like to touch on. Um, one is that uh, you asked us to talk to 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 talk about the this intersection. Uh, between the, the living and non-living worlds. Um, one uh, observation that I have as an environmental historian, um, that's my uh, primary identification, is how little attention, with the exception of mining, which we, uh, all of us have uh, gave some attention to, but with the exception of mining, how little attention uh, scholars have given until very, very recently to the world of rocks and minerals, to the lithosphere, in contrast to the innumerable books about trees and forests and gardens and, and the whole field of animal studies. Uh, we need mineral studies and lithosphere studies in the midst of this uh, humanistic turn. We need a, need a uh, um, this needs to be uh, a key part of the, of the material turn. Uh, and one realization that comes from this is that the idea of the material world as being non-living is actually a very recent and restricted idea, especially found in, um, in modern uh, European drive science. The early modern version of this did not consider the mineral world to be non-living at all. It's capable of growing. In fact, the reason the mines of Minas, one of the reasons the mines of Minas Gerais 
um, in uh, the interior of Brazil were discovered with by the Banjerantes is because they had the sense that we're at the same latitude of the mountains of Potosi. Sergio Barca de Holanda is my source for this. Um, I bet there might be some great mines here. And uh, lo and behold, <laughs> there sure were. Um, the idea being that uh, minerals would grow best in this particular in these particular places. And I'm fascinated as well, Waman uh, Poma de Ayala, um, um, very important indigenous intellectual and activist from the end of the 16th and early 17th century, 17th century, who wrote this huge chronicle um, denouncing the, uh, the, the crimes of, uh, of Spanish colonization and their impact on indigenous peoples. He adopted this same thinking and integrated it um, with, um, with uh, the indigenous thinking, of course, that he had, had grown, grown up there. So this idea of the mineral kingdom as living is actually the dominant way of thinking about the world for most cultures across world history, including European-derived cultures. Um, a second point I want to make uh, much more briefly is that uh, I want to point out that historians are so often um, obsessed with specificity. And one of the points that I wanted to make is not to discard the specificities, but the, the way in which history seemingly gets stuck like a phonograph record in this little track again and again and again. Um, there's a famous uh, work of literary theory, La Isla Que Se Repite, The Repeating Island, uh, about the um, place of, uh, of the Caribbean islands in, in, in literature. Um, the, the mine, extractivism, starting from Hispaniola from 1493 is a critical aspect of La Risla Que Se Repite, of the Repeating Island. And the third thing I wanted to mention is actually to uh, um, point some things that um, both Angelica, your presentation and Andrea's uh, um, brought uh, together so nicely uh, and interestingly is the way in which um, Spanish language and Quechua or Quechua language concepts um, are discussed bilingually and sometimes with a little bit of English thrown in, in this and the, um, the intensity and creativity and vibrancy of this uh, cross-cultural and transcultural and multicultural talking. Bacha is such an important concept in all this because it, it has so many dimensions and, and I had like you just uh, you mentioned a, a few of them. Talk about the relationship between history and geography, space and time. I typically translate bacha as space time, something that gringo, at least to gringos, something that because of Star Trek and stuff like this, we could people like, oh yeah, I can kind of get this. Um, it's fundamental to understand that those two things aren't so distinct. And also that pacha can mean the ground beneath our feet, the soil that gives us life and the things beneath the soil um, that, um, um, constitute such as precious metals that constitute other things. Um, I, I, and lastly, I point out this sense that the space that is before us, space-time that is before us, has, it, history is embedded in everything that we see starting from this concept. And so um, it's no accident, uh, certainly not an accident, um, the way in which these, uh, this conversation uh, and sharing um, of concepts grounded in native thinking is, is producing so much innovation in the world of um, thinking about nature and then 
organizing in order to protect human nature's reciprocal inner um, dependence on one another. Thanks, Greg. All right, Nigel, take us away. Hey, thanks, um, and thanks for giving me the longest time to think about this. I think, think that, that my colleagues here have said some wonderful things, particularly around issues of, of justice, environmental justice. I'm particularly interested in kind of reclaiming histories of the possibility of engaging with the earth, the subsurface, otherwise. So there's some really interesting gendered histories. If we go right back and think that the invention of the kiln was most likely a, a women's invention. So for me, one of the crucial inventions in really transforming the relationship between people on the surface of the earth to the subsurface of the earth was women coming from um, things they did with, with ovens for cooking food, which became the kiln and most, most likely um, you know, a, a female invention. Then I want to think also about the, the different ways that people all over the world, you know, long before the Industrial Revolution, engaged with the subsurface. Um, indigenous people in many parts of the world uh, using various minerals, you know, often for, for reasons of, of ceremony, using the ground beneath their fires to put a stone flint to transform the way it worked, the way it operated. Then thinking, for example, of the, the amazing traditions of um, metallurgy you know, right across so much of, of the ancient world. Um, Sub-Saharan Africa, amazing traditions of, of working with iron. In some places, making kilns where they use termites nests as the basis of the kiln to allow the air to come in. So there's all these fascinating kind of histories of other ways of engaging with the earth. And so often what really matters is an experimentalism. It's, it's the beauty, the ornateness of what's being produced. The sheer joy of working with I think it's really important to reclaim those histories that give us an alternative way of engaging with the earth and the subsurface as well as and alongside these really, really important issues of justice. Because in some senses, this is how we do things otherwise. And for me, this is a vital part of politics. How might we do these things? Engage with the earth differently. So I'll leave it at that, thanks. Thank you so much to the organizers and to the panelists. There's just really so, so much to think about. Um, and I'm sorry we're out of time, but I want to remind everybody that there is a 20, 25 minutes discussion post panel discussion. So please stay. Um, the chat, uh, the info on how to join it is in the chat. And um, because the fire metaphor is so rich, I want to say that, you know, we're going to continue to forge ahead or forge together. I don't like to think about ahead. I think about time as sort of circular. Um, so I'm looking forward to forging connections, forging thought, forging our imagination. Um, and thank you so much to all of you and to the participants for staying, for listening, and uh, hope to join some of you in the Q&A afterwards.